you're following a delicious recipe, or you're reading a great novel, they ask and give two different experiences. Both certainly have their place, because if you love good recipes, you love good food. And if you love reading, you love good stories. But they ask for different things. A recipe, for the most parts, although there are some exceptions, they don't take very long. A recipe presents a list of things in order to achieve your goal. And if you're like me, I like ticking them off as I go along because it feels better. Like I'm closer to the end goal, I'm closer to the food. And they tend to be very specific. If you're good at reading recipes, they're probably easy to follow. And they require a little less critical thinking, kind of thinking through problem solving. It's just follow this order and you get good food. A novel, though, is different in just about every other way. The author, if he's a good or she's a good author, builds a story with complex characters, plots, rising action, a climax, usually followed by some sort of fall, something goes wrong, a resolution, and a finish. A great story invites you in. Not by explicitly saying, hey, reader, come on into the story. See yourself in these characters. But it's written so compellingly that you can't help but see yourself in these characters. You're like, I'm actually making these decisions. I'm fearing with this character. I'm wondering what's going to happen next. You feel every movement. You find yourself wrestling with every decision. You receive the punch of disappointment when the climax moves down. Like, how did they make this decision? How did this all go wrong? The disillusion of the fall and the satisfaction and the resolution when everything comes back together and things go right. It feels good. After reading the story, you're like, yeah, this is, this is the right thing to happen. And so often, I think that we think of the Christian life as probably more of a recipe. If I do this, 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 and this, then things will go well. Sometimes even the delicious recipe. If I do this, this, and this, I'm going to have a really good, delicious recipe to enjoy at the end of my day. Things will go right for me. But I think John's Gospel says, no, your life is more like a great novel. And the Gospel of John becomes this great novel. Even the greatest novel. You, yourself, you are inserted in this drama. Doesn't say, hey, you, come in here. But because you're part of this divine drama, you are in this. Every single movement, every single decision, everything that Jesus does, you are part of. It's brought back in John 1, it's the beginning of all things, and the fulfillment of all things in Christ Jesus. So coming to the Gospels, it's helpful to note that these were written in light of the resurrection. So they weren't written right when these things were happening. It's, there's, there's eyewitness accounts, but it probably happened that John cobbled these all up, makes a faithful account, this is what Jesus did, this is what he said, what he's done. Because he gives us the answer at the end of John 21, is that all of these things are written so that you might believe in Christ. He states his purpose. That's what I want you to know. And the best scholarly guess is the gospel according to John was written sometime in the 70s. It's 
probably the last gospel written. About a generation after the resurrection of Christ. So he's writing in light of all this stuff. This is what Christ did. So if you believe in him, you're part of this drama. If you don't believe in him, you're still part of this drama. But the drama does not lead to a good resolution. But if you are part of this drama, this drama does lead to a good resolution. And so we'll begin our time in the Gospel of John by talking about the whole. Because that's what John 1 does. It doesn't just give us a prologue into it. It actually gives you the entirety of redemptive history, and it slowly works through it from there on out. So we'll see point one, the authors of creation. Verses 1 through 5. It's the cosmic beginning of all things. It's a, you can call it a Trinitarian beginning. Point two is the problem with creation. Verses 6 through 14. You rebelled against the triune God. They rebelled against the triune God. Revealed in the person of the Son, the divine logos. That's what's wrong. Triune God who created all things, you rebelled. The creation rebelled against the creator. And then point three, the solution for creation. Verses 15 through 18. I mean, really, against all odds, it's, it's, the, it's the craziest divine reversal. Is the very God who you wronged came into creation and says, I'm going to make it right. Took on rebellion and fulfilled all righteousness. And so I pray that this is clear throughout. Though you have rebelled against the Creator, Jesus has fulfilled all righteousness to place you back in the family. Because you started part of this. And you rebelled, and now you're back, if you believe in Jesus. So we'll see, and starting in point one, the authors of creation. It's not just the author, it's the authors of creation. The story of all stories, the true and cosmic drama, and cosmic is just kind of the whole universe, everything that you see, everything that exists, begins not with time, it begins with the Godhead. Verse 1, it should bring your mind back to creation, specifically Genesis 1. He's, I mean, it's, he's very intentionally building off Genesis 1. But if you read the synoptic gospels, it's not just means those who kind of see the same thing. Matthew, Mark, and Luke begin with the genealogy, for the most part. Or a commencement of the ministry of Jesus, or the incarnation. The gospel of John begins before all of that. It begins with the word. But not any simple word. It's not just a, a thing you say or a thing you hear. It's the word. Unless you think this word is some odd concept or really some immaterial principle, which is probably what the Greeks thought at this time, Greek and Romans, which is probably why... John uses this as the word. This is not a Greek thing. This is not some immaterial concept. Not just some thing that's in your brain that you think of. So this word was with God. And you're like, hold up. A word is with God. And is God. You usually think with God is like two people with each other. Two different people. But it says, but is God. You're like, how does this make sense? We get so used to this language as Christians that 
that the oddity, like this is an odd thing to say. This goes against everything we think. This goes against everything they thought. How is this possible? And John's not trying to confuse you. He's trying to bring you along this, this drama. He's like, stick with me. I'll explain this. Because in verse 2, as short as it is, it has massive implications, which we'll get to. Because the word did not become God. It didn't start off as one thing and then grew up or was adopted. Or started something like God, kind of on the spectrum of divine godness and Start off in like level one of God and then level ten God later on. But it was in, the, was in the beginning with God. And yet, is God. And continuing with verse three, we get a little help on how this word and God relate to each other. It's called divine relations. Usually we think like human relations, how we love, how we talk, how we interact. These are divine relations. They are of the same divine essence. You can think they're Godness. They're both equally God, not different parts of God. Not like different pie pieces of the God thing, but they're all God. They're purely divine. Because God made all things through the Word. That's how you know the Word is God. Because God made things through the Word. He doesn't make things through that's not Him. Doesn't make something out of something that's not God. That's called a relation. God is the God who creates, and the Word is who He creates through. Doesn't work in any other way besides that. If God creates, He creates through the Word. Doesn't create on His own. Creates through the Word. So when you get through or read through Genesis 1, when God speaks things into existence, John's interpreting it for us. So when God says, let it be, and it was, he's saying, that was through the word. That was made through Jesus. That's, that's John's interpretation. But that's how you should read Genesis 1. And since all things, you, me, and all of creation, then everything was created, you can call it kind of in the mold of the word. If everything was made through Jesus... Everything has like this Jesus imprint. Everything has this divine imprint on it. And this is why Paul can say in Romans 1, you know God through creation. Because he imprinted himself on creation. You, you can't not see God through creation. It's, it's, he's there, he's present. We don't know the fullness of him through creation. We call that general revelation versus special revelation, which we'll get to. But you do know that there's a God. Because he placed himself there. He created everything. Everything's made through this. Doesn't mean it has parts of God, but it's made in the mold of God. Because you were created through the Word, you recognize everyone, not just Christians, but everyone recognizes that the Word is made through God. Or that the, the, the world was made through God. God didn't find existing materials. Saw some things in creation. like, oh, let's cobble all this stuff up together. Let's make a world. But spoke everything into existence. So in three verses already, 
you hear that everything finds its beginning in the creator because of the creator, and it's not an accident. It's not just a, 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 a cosmic accident where everything find, finds its way into being what we see. So I want you to hear this quote from famed atheist materialist Richard Dawkins. Richard talks about what we're talking about today. He says, My objection to supernatural beliefs is precisely that they miserably fail to do justice to the sublime grandeur of the real world. And listen to this. He says they represent a narrowing down from reality, an impoverishment of what the real world has to offer. He's saying the divine creation story is actually too small. It doesn't give you everything. It's weak. It's not dramatic. If you read John 1, 1 through 3, you're like, hold up. This is pretty big. This explains a lot. John 1 comes in as the most grand explanation. If you read this well, he's saying, no, everything has its purpose. Everything comes from God. It's bigger than you, and it includes you. And he says, that's narrowing down. How is this not the greatest and most sweeping justice, the grandeur of the world you and I see. It's not a narrowing down. This materialist and kind of all accidental, that's narrowing down. But now it's made by God. And made through the Word. Then in verse 4, all things were created through the Word because the Word is life. If you think about it, in order for the Word to produce all life, the Word has to have life. It has to be life in and of itself for it to create more life. It doesn't just like bring life from somewhere else and kind of spew it out and say, here it is. It says, no, I'm life. Let me create more life. This life is not just perceived from the word, but the word is life itself. It only produces life if it has life in itself. And not just life, it's not, I mean, which is good. Like, you want to breathe, you want to have a beating heart, you want to have blood rushing through your system, you want to live. It's plenty to praise him for. But this life that John is talking about is, is life. Not just the thing that enlivens you, but it's actually true life. And not just life that enlivens you, but life abundant with God who created you. That's what John's thinking. It's communion with God life. That's actually life. Living with him in perfect communion. And John will get there, but he's kind of previewing himself here. Because creation was the was to end in life. We've, we've heard that from Genesis 1 to 3. Adam and Eve were given a commission, do this and you'll live. Not just like beating hard, blood rushing through your system, live. But you'll live with me. You live in, in bliss fraternity with me. And that's what John's saying. That's actually life. And this life in verse 5 shines in darkness. No, notice what you call the aspect of the verb. It's not past, it's not even future, it's present. It shines in the darkness. This death and darkness, which, which you know all too well, John knows, 
Christian history, past is known, that we've plunged ourselves into. It's not just we've kind of found ourselves in the darkness. It's you said, no, the darkness looks better than the light. I want more of the darkness. I don't want the light. There's a direct violation, and the recipient of the punishment of God is now to be exposed by the light. All this darkness that we see that we're in, that's to be exposed. By the light of the word, who is the life that you so desperately need? And like the lights of the spirit which broods over the darkness, it's kind of its spirit is over the darkness in Genesis 1 2. Remember, it's over the darkness and void, over the formlessness and deep of the earth. Forming what God had created into the mold of the word. Not just existing, but God creates this. And the light of the new creation life, because Isaiah 60 uses this. John's probably pulling from Isaiah 60 in John 1.5. So it talks about this. This is not just lights. Like you flick on your lamp when you walk into a dark room. This is new creation breaking in. This is the kingdom of God breaking into creation, saying, look to this light. The drama of all dramas begins with the creation of all things by the divine creator through his word and the power of the spirit who breaks into creation because creation rebelled. And that's that's the crazy thing about John 1. It's creation rebelled against the creator. You rebelled against the creator. We're going to see this in point two, the problem with creation. If you read this through, it's it's kind of an odd break at verse six. Because he he goes kind kind of eternity past, and he talks about John. It's kind of a weird switch. This sent one came, distinct from the word, because he's trying to distinguish creation from the creator. Saying, John's not the creator. Witnesses to the creator, made by the creator, but definitely not the creator. John is not the Christ, and John says this in John 3. He says, I'm not the one you're looking for. He, he's got to increase, I've got to decrease. And he kind of previews that in John 1, 6. And in verse 7, he testifies concerning him. He's like, I'm not the creator, but I'm going to tell you about the creator. I'm going to tell you about the one who's coming, and the one who actually is here right now. And this witness or this testimony that's used here, so to bear witness, is not just kind of an innocence looking here and bearing witness, but it's, it's probably court language. John sees himself, and he comes in a long line of, of prophets. We talked about Amos the last few weeks. John's like a prophet like Amos. He brings a lawsuit against people who failed the covenant, who failed to live up to God's law, and he says, you failed, you have to repent. If you want to be found in this kingdom. So he's bringing a prophetic testimony. And John comes to bear witness to the word by testifying to all who will listen to him that they have failed to live up to the standards of the covenant between God and man. He says the same thing to you. You have failed to live up to God's law. That's the point of John. John the Baptist. Like, you failed. Repent. Believe in Jesus and come into the true kingdom. You think this world's a kingdom, it's not the kingdom. 
The kingdom will come is the kingdom. And he pleased you to believe. That's, that's John's kind of entire prophetic witness is believe in this one who's coming. He foreshadows that conversation at the end of John 3. And this testimony of John points to the true lights of verse 9. He just talked about the lights. The author, John, talked about the light which shines in verse 5. This new creation breaking into the, to the darkness of the world. And this light which seemed so far off because of our sin, in the midst of your failure, doesn't say this light comes and shines after the darkness is all dead and gone. As the light shines in the darkness, exposes the darkness. It shines because you yourself, in Adam, failed to kill the serpents, failed to cast it out, failed to, get, to not give in into temptation. And your failure was shocking. Our failure was shocking. And it's still shocking. Let's read from verse 10. He was made, or he was in the world, and the world was made through him. We just talked about this. So of all things, you would think, the creation knows its creator, right? When the creator breaks into history and says, I'm the creator. You would think creation says like, oh yeah, I recognize him. Looks familiar. I was made in your image. Come on in. It says, yet the world did not know him. And this, this is the problem. It's not a new problem, but this is the problem. The problem as old as Adam and Eve, patriarchs and prophets, all the way to the incarnation of Jesus and after the incarnation of Jesus. Though all things were made, it's not those things like Jesus forgot to create a few people and like, we don't like you because we don't know who you are. Because everything was made through him and then everything rebelled. Not just a part of creation or like this thing way distant past or on this different mountain range they couldn't see, but every single piece of creation says, we don't like you. We don't want you. We're not going to obey you. We reject you. That's, that's really, it's not even we don't like you, we're not going to listen to you. It's, no, stay arm's length, go away from us. You're not seeing or recognizing the Creator, our Redeemer, that'd be bad enough. But we don't stop there. You, you know we don't stop there. You know we don't stop at just rejecting. It expands on verse 5, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it to verse 11. These are the same verb as verse 5. Is overtake it and says, we didn't receive him. Which means, we didn't want him. You created me, I don't want you. The key of, and dweller in new creation came into the darkness. In the darkness, we, you, said no. The very thing that started all of this, that created you, you said no to. I don't want him. It's, it's hard to overstate this. All of creation rejected who created it. Not just like a little piece of it or a majority of it. 
All of creation rejected him. Everybody, everything rejected him. You rejected him. And this is the problem with creation. This is our problem. This is your problem. This is my problem. It's as if, we have examples here today, it's as if there's newborn infants on the delivery table just delivered from the womb of his mother as if a newborn could be sentient in a, in a talking way, turns back to his mother and says, thanks, but see ya. Or even worse, thanks for giving me life, but I wish you were dead. I don't even want you. I wish you were dead. That's, that's us creation talking to our creator. I don't want you. That's our fundamental problem. We use the very gift given us by the creator, your life, and you use that to stiff-arm the creator. However, as you look back at verse 12, all those who receive the word as opposed to those who reject him, he gave the right to become children of God. Estranged from the family of God. And this is not a different group. Not like there's those who reject and those who receive. It's everybody rejects. And of that, there's those who receive. Estranged from the family, by your doing and continual decisions, the word brings you back. You reject me, but I want you. You reject me, but I love you. It's not you showed a little bit of goodness in your heart, you've made the right decision, you kind of followed along a good line, I'm going to choose you. He says, no, you reject me, I'm going to choose you. You didn't go back up into heaven, plead for him to come down, saying, I, I made a mistake, I made a huge mistake, please come back down. But he came into the very creation hostile to him. He created it, and they were hostile to him immediately in order to bring you back. Didn't come down to a creation who was looking forward to his coming. Came to creation who was like, I don't want him to come back. Because things are going to go really bad for me. This family you've been brought into by faith is not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, in verse 13, but of God. Think about it. nothing in the mind of man, nor the desire of the nations, or of creation, was enough to bring back God. He wasn't looking at us and saying, they've got a little tinkling in their eye, a little bit of their heart softened up, now I'm going to come back. Now they're good, we're on good terms. We're heading towards good terms. There, there, was, there was nothing in you that wanted him. And he still said, I want to go back into that darkness and get you. Not go back in the light and get you, but go back in the darkness and get you. God forms his family, those marked by his word, and then brought back by his word. As opposed to the temporary bonds of blood relations. We tend to think the family is thicker than blood. They say, no, God's family is thicker than blood. The relation of his children, of God, is formed by the bonds of the word. That's how he creates his new family. And then wonder of all wonders in verse 14. We, 
We can, we can move to the incarnation, I think, sometimes too fast. We start with the incarnation, we move from there as if God incarnates in the very world that hates him, the very thing that rejects him. He says, I'm going to take that on. I'm going to be born of that same thing that rejects me. The word with God and being God comes to the hostile world. Not in the might of God. He doesn't come as like the conquering king immediately. He doesn't just come as the, as the 33-year-old king and says, Let, let's, let's do this. You and me, world, mano a mano, we're going to go after this. He comes as an infant. Comes as the weakest thing you can possibly think of, the one that still relies on its mother for, for years. <coughs> That's how he comes to a hostile world. He comes to a world that hates him. He comes as an infant. And sure, God was represented on earth in tents, in tabernacles, and temples, the Old Testament, but he never took on human flesh. Even pre-incarnate visions of Christ were not fleshly. They're just visions. And remember, only a single priest, once a year, not all of creation, but one person, one man, once a year, saw a glimpse of God. And not even God. A fire that burns from the, the altar. That's all he sees. But in the incarnation, everybody who was around Jesus saw God. Wasn't a different thing than God. Wasn't a different being than God. They saw God incarnate. When nobody had ever seen God. And they see him. And not just some of the glory. It wasn't just like he kind of inserted a little bit of glory in Jesus, but that they can't handle all the glory. He puts every single piece of glory into Jesus without losing any glory himself. And says, here you go. This then provides us the transition from the problem of creation to the solution for creation, our last points. Because the solution is the incarnation. God takes on the problem himself. Doesn't say, you, hey, shape up, figure it out. I'm coming, get better. He says, no, I'm coming to make you better. And in verse 15, he, point, he paints, comes back to this picture, bearing testimony that though his word, or though this word, who came after him physically, John saying that this word came after me physically, but actually precedes me. You know, like, this doesn't make any sense. How can somebody who comes after me, born after me, is actually older than me? Because it precedes me. And, and that's the mystery of the union of the divine nature. Jesus is fully God. And the human nature. Jesus is fully man. Not 100% God and 100% man, but fully God and fully man. Because with God and is God, and he unifies with the human nature of those who rebelled against him. It's not just kind of an innocent, neutral incarnation, but you have to remember he unites the divine nature with the human nature that hates him, that rejects him, and he takes it on. This fully God and fully human word came in the fullness of glory 
this mobile tabernacle that's all throughout the Old Testament from Exodus onwards up until the, the building of the temple by Solomon. And it moved. The temple didn't move. Tabernacle moved. Moved with the people. It now gives you all of his fullness. Because Israel had a lot of stuff to do if they wanted to keep the, t- the tabernacle with them. You're promised that this tabernacle stays with you. Not upon your obedience, not upon anything you do. This is, I'm going to be with you, I'm going to stay with you. It's not a remote God who just kind of stays off in the distance and says, you know, I'll save you guys, but I'm going to stay kind of far away because you guys are really filthy, really impure, really bad, and I can't be around those people. I can't be around you. I'm above them. It's not even an offer of, of part of his fullness. Here's a little bit, kind of to make you happy for a little bit. And he wants to keep something for himself. He's like, I can't give all of me, because that means my people are going to have kind of the fullness of my glory, and I can't share my glory with anybody. It's almost as if he had a finite amount of glory, and to give it means he loses some. It's not even an offer of participation where he offers you to join in your journey, but you don't receive anything. He just joins you. He's just kind of along for the ride. But you don't actually get anything. This is, this is an offer of full and complete fellowship. That's what you get. Based fully upon the merit of the work. <coughs> who gives you full participation. That's what the incarnation does. It's not just a little bit. doesn't just walk with you. He says, you get everything I have. Everything I earned, I'm giving to you. You get full access to my glory. Everything. He doesn't leave anything on the table. He gives you everything he is. Again, to the very people who rejected him. So I'm going to give you everything. You are the very person who spurned him. You're the very person who disobeyed him. And he offers himself. He says even the fullness of himself. That's what you get. And John ends the section by, by finally naming him. I haven't used the name up until now. Because John doesn't use the name up until now. He asks, who is this that, that came in the weakness of human flesh but in the full force of divinity, and he finally names him. It's Jesus. That's who does it for you. And Jesus is not some random name, but it's used throughout the Old Testament, a couple names. But it's a Hebrew word for he who saves. He who delivers. Name given to Jesus by the angel to his parents, he who saves. The parents didn't just come up with their own name and say, this is who we're going to call him. But Mary told by the angels, hey, this is what you're going to call him. Jesus. And it's he who saves because you had a big problem with God. You had a big problem, and he names what this problem really is. It's the law given through Moses. Because if you had no law, you have no idea what's wrong with you. You have no idea what you fell under. You have no idea why you're condemned. You have no idea who's going to do this for me that I can get the benefits of all this stuff. 
It's not because the law was the problem, because we hear very clearly from John 1 that the creation is the problem. Not God's law. Creation is the problem. You're the problem. Because law exposes just how bad you are. It itself is not bad, but it exposes. It's like a mirror. You have a pimple, a bunch of pimples in your face. Like, if you didn't have a mirror, you wouldn't see all that stuff. You may not want to see all that stuff, but that's what the law does. It exposes this stuff to us. It exposes the extent of your perversity, your disdain for God, who created you, and your desire for everything that God is not. Your lies, your deception, your unrighteousness, your greed, your envy, everything that is contrary to God's law. Grace and truth came through Jesus, not condemnation. Not the fullest extent of what the law does to you, but through Jesus, grace and truth. Not a parallel to the law. He, he changes it. He, he could have said, Jesus came to condemn you. He says, no, Jesus came to save you. He's the fullness of the Godhead because he doesn't just say, the law is no longer, let's forget about that. That was good for its time, but it's no longer in effect. He says, no, I came to fulfill the thing you can't do. Truly, though, no one has ever seen God. No one has seen God. No one will see God. God the Father. But you will see Jesus. Remember, Jesus is not a different divine being. He's not a different thing. He's the second person of the same divine Godhead. So you will see God through Jesus. The Word become flesh. Because no one has ever seen God the Father, the only God, but you get a glimpse through Jesus. You can't see Him because He's immaterial. God is immaterial. He's invisible. He's not a thing to be seen. But He says, you know what? I'm going to show them myself through human, through Jesus. He has truly made Him known. Jesus has truly made God known. We, we can't really handle the fullness of God, and we'll never get to know the fullness of God, because if we got to know the fullness of God, God would be finite. But God's infinite. So you can't know the fullness of God, but you can know Him truly. Not knowing Him fully is different than knowing Him truly. And He says you will know Him truly. Better yet, not even you will know Him, but you are known by Him. And you're known by Him fully. Because he doesn't just look at you and say, oh, I just learned this new thing about them today. That they had this bad desire today. Or they had this greedy heart today. He says, I know full well what I came into. I know them fully. So I'll, I'll conclude this by asking, are you part of this gospel drama? The, the drama of the creator and his creation. The history of our creation, fall, Redemption accomplished by the word, Jesus Christ, and then our inevitable consummation. If you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth, as Paul says in Romans 10, that Christ is Lord, you're in this drama. And you're part of those that Jesus Christ has come to save. But if you've not been believed, it's not that you evaded this drama, it's not that you are inserted to a different drama, 
you're on the wrong side of this drama. Because the drama includes both. It includes those who are saved and those who are not saved. This drama will not conclude in your redemption. Drama will not conclude in your consummation in bliss of communion with God. This drama will end with your banishments, with your punishments, the thing that you deserve, and that all of us deserve. Your banishment from all things good and perfect. So my question really has an answer. Yes, you're part of this drama. Which side of the drama are you on? Which, which family are you in that receives the fullness and the benefits of God? But this drama will end with the beginning of true life for those who believe in Jesus. When the light of God will never vanish. Because the light shines and there will be no darkness. It won't be distinguished from darkness. It will just be light. That's all you'll have. You'll enjoy communion with the Son who gave you eternal life. And that communion you're promised here in John 1, that communion will never end. It will not be light and darkness. It will just be lights and bliss. You get that. Let's pray. Oh Lord, you are so good to us. You've come into this darkness of creation, <coughs> not to a people who looked as if though they were getting their life together, who looked as if they didn't like the dark and wanted the light. But we, your people, were, were perfectly happy to be in the dark. And we didn't want the light. We rejected the light. But Lord, you came in your Son to expose the darkness in us, to pay for the darkness, the sins in us, and through your Son to give us full and perfect righteousness. We are part of this divine drama, not as those who will eventually be banished into hell and darkness, but those who will enjoy the bliss of new creation heaven. We will never know a day outside of light. All we will ever know is the light of your communion with you, your Son, and your Spirit. We thank and praise you all this in your Son's name. Amen. Amen.